Generally in baseball, a team that scores a lot of runs has a winning record. So for instance, right now in Major League Baseball, uh, the team that has scored the most runs on average is the Atlanta Braves, 5.83, and they're in first place in the National League East. The second highest team in terms of runs scored per game is the, the Dodgers, 5.66. They're in first place in the NL West. The third team, the third highest team that scored the most runs is the Texas Rangers, 5.55. Now, they're in third place in the AL West. That's a little bit deceiving. They're only two games out of first, so they, they could be in first before we meet again next Sunday. Today, we're going to use that analogy, that analogy of Getting across the plate, going all the way around the bases, scoring runs so you can win. We're going to use that analogy for the church. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. I invite your attention there. We're preaching through the book of Hebrews. We come up to 10, 19 to 25 today. We're going to talk about a church that scores runs. Now, we're not talking about Major League Baseball Let's just call it major league disciple-making. Because that's what the church is supposed to be all about, right? I mean, that's what Jesus' last words were to us. In, as he was about to leave in Matthew 28, he said to his first disciples, his first followers, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. This is God's plan for the church. It's to multiply and to reproduce. Now, as we're going through Hebrews, here's a high-level view. Hebrews is divided in three sections. We started, I think it was in April, I think it was after Easter when we started the first section talks about the supremacy of Jesus, the Son of God, the chapters 1 to 4, 13. And then we moved past that section into the second section, which we have been in for several months, and that talks specifically about Jesus' ministry as high priest, all the way from 4.14 to 10.18. That's where we left off last Sunday at 1018. And then we come today to chapter 10, verse 19, that starts with a very key word, and that key word is therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and what that therefore does is it links everything that he's covered specifically about Jesus' high priestly ministry, and it thrust us into the third section of Hebrews, which we begin today. And that is, how do we respond? Our response to this Son of God. And from now to the end of this series in December, we're going to talk about perseverance and faith and obedience, all of these ways that we respond to the great high priest, to who Jesus is and to what he has done. 
So I would describe the context of our passage today in Hebrews 10 like this. The first word in Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, marks a significant turning point in the epistle as it begins applying this rich theology of the past chapters to the life of the church. So let's, let's read Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not forsaking or not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, these few verses talk about how you can see biblical community flourish. God has a part in it, and that's in verses 19 to 21. And we who are believers in Christ have a part, and that's found in verse, verses 22 to 25. So let's dive in and talk about first God's part. God's part is the work of Christ. Notice what's highlighted on the screen. Notice that he talks about these two great possessions that Christians have because he calls them brothers and sisters. That's his way of saying you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a Christian. He is writing to people who have professed to be Christians. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So the first great possession that God has given us is confidence. The most holy place stands for the immediate presence of God. Unlike the Old Testament, back in the days of the tabernacle, where there were certain rooms and there was an outer court, and then there was a holy place room, and the most holy place or the holy of holies, only one person, one priest could go in there, the high priest could go in there one time a year. That's it. There was not access for the average believer. Unlike that, now Christians today, we have access to the immediate presence of God. We can go into the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross secured the ability for you and me to just be in God's presence 
anytime and all the time. The curtain, <laughs> it's a new and living way that was opened up, right? And the curtain was not the curtain in the, old, in the tabernacle that separated that most holy room. His body was broken. And, of course, when that happened, historically, the, the curtain in, in the, the, the temple was, was torn in two from top to bottom. We also have a great priest. Since we have a great priest over the uh, house of God, there's no longer any need for an Old Testament priest to stand in our place, or like some false religions teach today, for a human priest to stand between you or me and God. We have a living, compassionate, high priest, Jesus. And so that's why the main idea of this sermon, you can see this much on your outline if you're following there, starts with these words, because of all that Jesus has done to bring us close to God. And again, it's referring back to what's happened over several chapters in, in Hebrews. Because of that, and now as we will finish that sentence, but before we do that, let's, let's walk through the passage. And as we walk through the passage, now it turns to our part in the process. Here's God's part. God gives us access. God gives us a priest. So what do we do? Well, our part, notice in verse 22 to 25, do you, do you see the words that are highlighted there? <laughs> let us, let us, let us. Three times he says, let us do this, let us do this, let us do that. The first two relate to what we do with God or in response to God. The third let us relates to what we do with one another. So we'll, we'll walk through there. So let's start with the first let us there in um, verse, it almost sounds like lettuce, doesn't it? <laughs> Nobody else thought about that? Okay. You're not hungry yet. That's good. Number one, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This language, to draw near in that context, was what people would do when they would approach a God. Here in Hebrews, it is an invitation to draw near to the one true holy God in worship. Let us draw near. Draw near to God in worship. Draw near to God in prayer. And it's in the present tense in the original language. So it's the idea, the concept of being a process. Keep on drawing near. Unfortunately, it's far too easy to become content with our current spiritual condition. Right, And the, the writer's saying, you can't stay content because if you're trying to stay the same, ultimately you're going to be drifting. And I think about this picture. 
that person out there in that raft in the ocean, there is no way that they're going to stay right there, right? The, the waves are going to just cause them to drift. And that's what happens to us spiritually. We, if, if we make no effort, if we make no response to all that God has done, and we say, well, I'm okay, I'm just going to kind of stay here, well, we're going to end up, we're going to look out on the beach for God, and, and we, when we left him, the, the chairs were right there, and then we're going to find ourselves way down. The tide has taken us far away. The four phrases in this verse that help us understand how we should draw near to God with a sincere heart that's having a sincere attitude. It's not like just going through the motions. And with the full assurance that faith brings, there, you, there has to be faith involved. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, that's salvation. It's an allusion to the Old Testament sacrifice. And then having our bodies washed with pure water, that's either uh, a reference to, to water baptism, which the, is the outward sign of the inward reality, or, or it possibly could be another allusion to the, to the Old Testament rituals. And the most practical way I know, it happens in the heart. It's not a formula. It's not probably doesn't look the same for every single person, but the most practical way I personally know of drawing near to God is setting aside time every day just to get alone with him. It's me and him and the Bible <laughs> and prayer. I mean, that's it. And it's not doesn't have to be complex, but that is an opportunity when we when we get away from the busyness of life and we say, God, in these moments, I want to draw near to you. And of course, that propels us through the rest of the day. And again, it's not just a religious duty. It has to be done with a sincere heart. Now, the second let us is in verse 23, and that is to hold fast to the hope that you profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. The original readers of this epistle had professed hope in Christ, a hope in the future. In fact, hope is a key theme throughout the letter of Hebrews. In chapter 2, verse 10, the writer said that God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Hope resonates throughout Hebrews 6. Hebrews 9.28 says that believers can look forward to Christ returning a second time. There's a hope there. And now in this verse, 10.23, we are called to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. But not just called to do it. We're, we're given a basis for it. <laughs> we're told how it can happen. Look at the last few words of the verse. For, for he who promised is faithful. It's not our commitment that's the key. The key is the faithfulness of God. For he who promised is faithful. And we get this interplay as we've talked about uh, at different times here. It's here in Hebrews. It's throughout the New Testament. There's this interplay between two truths. One is that God preserves Christians. 
And the other side of it is Christians persevere. A true believer cannot lose their salvation, but one who only professes and doesn't possess faith in Christ may let go. And he's saying to these people, you've made that profession. Hold on unswervingly. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Now, that's, that's two instances of let us. Now, the third one comes in verse 24. And at this part of, the, of our verses today, our little section today, again, it turns from, the, the, from God, our response to God. What is our response to each other? And remember, all that he's talking about is how we respond to this great high priest and everything that God's done, done for us. And we draw near to him. But we're supposed to do a lot of things with each other as well. And we are to focus on building up other believers. The key is found right at the beginning, and that is to consider each other. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Here's an instance where you really need to understand what the word means because in English sometimes consider might mean oh well I might think about it or I might consider it or whatever but that's not what this word means here <laughs> this word means here to fix your attention to focus intently on someone in a spiritual sense to fix the eyes of your spirit on someone it's not a casual action in other words, we're being called to take note of the spiritual welfare of other people around us, other Christians around us. And honestly, I don't believe this can happen in 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. This is not a command that can be obeyed on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is great. We worship together, we encourage each other, we get spurred on to what we're going to do all week long. But I don't believe you can obey Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 just casually or quickly. Now, let's compare two different ways of, uh, of people seeing something. So here's a sight we see all the time, right? These people are seeing their phone. They're just scrolling, right? They're not very intent. You know, they're just like, okay, they're going along. Something catches their attention, right? We, we all do that, right? Sometimes we, you know, do that. that. You might say they're looking at their phones. On the other hand, this lady is looking at her books. <laughs> she is studying intently. That's the picture. That second picture is the idea of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. When he says, consider each other, it's like, don't let people just scroll by your life. Don't just, oh, hi, good morning. Hey, how are you? Yeah, good to see you. Hi. And, and just scroll past them that way, but, but get serious about it. Look intently at other believers to see how they're doing. Um, and why do, we, why do we do it? Well, uh, we consider what? How we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
Now, this idea of spurring on, I think about a, it's like inciting. In fact, there's an instance in the New Testament when it's used in a negative sense between contention with people. But the idea is to spur something on. You know, like in the fall, you, you know, we got this little tiny glimpse of fall the last two or three days. Did, did you like a little bit of cooler weather rather than 95 and high humidity? All right, bad news. It's, it's going to be 95 again this coming week. But it, we all, I, I'm looking forward to that fall cool weather, like those fire pits, those fires. And, but, you know, the, the, if you just sit there and watch the fire, it'll go out. You've got to kind of stir it up a little bit, right? You've got to spur it on, and that's what we are to do with each other. We are to spur each other on. Sometimes that requires straight talk with each other. Song, uh, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So we need to spur each other on. But notice what we're spurring each other on towards. It's towards love and good deeds. It's not towards hatred and evil works. So if you're wondering, should I say something to somebody? Should I try to encourage them spiritually here? Should I confront them? Make sure that it's God's glory that you're interested in and their betterment and not just your own inconvenience. Some people like have this need to correct everybody, and it's more a need in themselves rather than a concern for the person. So let me just ask you this question. Do you treat the spiritual lives of believers more like they're just scrolling through your life or like you're studying to find out how to help them. Verse 25 shows us how to do it. This is the process now. The process is don't abandon each other, but encourage each other. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Giving up, that word means to abandon, to leave in straits, to leave helpless, to let down. And under the stress of persecution, there were apparently people in this congregation that were doing that. It's like, oh, I'm turning back. I can't take the persecution. My friends and family are rejecting me now. My job is gone, my whatever. I, I can't do it anymore. And so it, the focus is kind of on themselves. It's like, I'm, I'm going back. And the writer's saying, wait a minute. When you go back, you're abandoning the church. You're abandoning the body. And we often... It was true for them. I think, man, today in our society, everything in that they lived in a, in a communal kind of society, we live in an individualistic society, and we gauge everything by individual, how it affects us, right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, you know, I can't do that anymore. I can't think about it. And we forget about our leaving or abandoning the body, what it does to the body. And that's what he's saying. Don't abandon the body. Now, so the best application, sometimes this, these verses have used uh, by people to say, oh, well, see, you need to be at every worship service the church has. Now, I think that's a good thing myself, 
But I don't think that's what the passage is about. It's not saying just go to a worship service. It's calling Christians to meet together regularly for the purpose of encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Christ. The closer Christ returns becomes, the more important it is for us to do this. Now, what does it mean? What does it look like? I want to give you some pictures. This, this is actually not on your outline sheet. In fact, so you could just consider this free and bonus today, okay? There's no extra charge for this. But I just want to talk about encouragement a little bit before we start to wrap it up. Let's think about some aspects of encouragement. What does the Bible mean when it says to encourage each other? Well, sometimes it means to give comfort. This is what this original word um, means. 2 Corinthians, use 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It can also mean exhortation. It can mean urging someone on to spiritual maturity. And spoiler alert, I think that's what it means here in Hebrews 10. It means to urge others on to spiritual maturity. So, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 uses it this way. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask and urge you, that's the word, urge you, encourage you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Let me give you a simple definition of encouragement. This is from Larry Crabb and Dan Allender in a book entitled Encouragement. Encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian, even when life is rough. And that can take a lot of forms. It might take the form of a hug, a pat on the back, a word that praises them or calls out something good in them or a challenging word to them. But it's, it's the kind of expression that we make to each other that, that helps that person want to be a better Christian even when life is rough. Larry Crabb, the co-author of that book, <clears throat> had an interesting experience. He had a problem growing up with stuttering. And when he was in the ninth grade, he stood up one time to pray in church. And he said he, he stood up and he kind of stammered and he stuttered and he got confused and his theology was bad and he just, he just felt terrible. And after the service was over, he was like rushing out the door. He thought to himself, I am never going to ever speak up in church again. And a gentleman came up to him, caught him before he got out the door and kind of put his arm around his shoulder and said, Larry, I don't know what God is going to do within you and your life, but I just want you to know I'm behind you a thousand percent. That's encouragement. That's encouragement. And he writes, God intends that we be people who use words to encourage each other. 
A well-timed word has the power to urge a runner to finish the race, to rekindle hope when despair has set in, to spark a bit of warmth in an otherwise cold life, to trigger helpful self-evaluation in someone who doesn't think much about his shortcomings, to renew confidence when problems have the upper hand. Now, let me give you an example, a biblical example of encouragement. Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 14 in their missionary journey. Verse 19, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. The city's Lystra here, by the way. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Okay, put yourself in Paul's place. <laughs> You've been stoned and left for dead. They try to kill you. And so you go on. They think you're dead. They leave you. You go on to the next city, Derby. And then you start to recover. And what do you do? I, I got to confess, for me... I'm never going back to Lystra, right? I mean, you know, I'm going to say, God closed the door <laughs> or something spiritual sounding, right? Look what Paul does, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra. Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. That is amazing to me. They went back to the very city where they were stoned. Why? Because they knew that believers, new believers had seen it. And they were concerned about these new believers. Maybe they would get discouraged and say, oh, well, I don't want to be a Christian if that's what happens to you. But they're like, they go back to that same city to those believers who saw it and encourage them. Hey, we have to go through trials. That's encouragement. Remember, encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian even when life is rough. So here's God's word for us this morning. Because of all that Jesus has done to bring us close to God, let's be intentional with him and others. Let's be intentional with him. Let's draw near to him. Let's hold fast to the profession, the hope we profess. Let's be intentional with him, but let's be intentional with others. Let's, let's encourage each other. Let's spur each other on to love and good deeds. Now, where does disciple-making happen? It happens in a lot of different kind of contexts. Sometimes it happens one-on-one. -on -one. Somebody brings somebody along, especially a new new or newer Christian helps them establish them in the basics. Sometimes it happens in D groups or discipleship groups. Uh, we have some of these at Harvest where one person might be meeting with two or three others and, and helping them grow. It happens also in ongoing biblical community in relationship. So it's, there are different ways it happens, but I want to kind of focus more on that 
third one, because I think Hebrews 10 is about that third one. Let's go back to our major league disciple making diamond, right? And let's think about the process. Well, tough question. What base do you have to get to first? First base, all right. Well, you have to be saved first, <laughs> right? It, it, for biblical community to exist, for disciple, to be a disciple and to make disciples, you have to be a Christian. And this is God's work. God does the saving. He stirs your heart. He squeezes your heart. And you realize you're a sinful person separated from God. You know Jesus died on the cross, and you say, yes, I believe. Please save me or something to that effect. And that gets you going in the process because you are now on base. And then it's good to go from there to get in a group. Get in a group of other Christians, a group of other believers that meet together regularly, not just casually or happenstance, like, oh, okay, once every six months, but a group that so getting in a group moves you to second base, but that's not very far yet. There's no, no run scored yet. So to, you got to go to the next base, and that's to really get connected with those people, to do life with those people. You know, you, you can be in a small group. You can be in a men's Bible study or a women's study, or you can be in a community group or a student group, you can be in some kind of group, and you can kind of just show up and stay on second base. Like, you show up on time, you know, you go to the group, and then you leave, and, and there's not a lot of connection. But what we want to see happen is people move beyond that, and the group kind of becomes a catalyst, just like Sunday morning becomes a catalyst to get people out in groups. Your group becomes a catalyst so you can do life together and get connected, really connected with each other. And yet, you still haven't scored a run yet <laughs> if you stay on third base. And sometimes people get stuck here. It's like, wow, I love my group. I love my group. I'm, I'm so connected to the people in my group. And we just really enjoy each other. And that's good. And we're thankful for that. And that's part of the process. But that's not the end goal of the process. That's not the final thing that happens. To get to home plate, you need to, you need to do the one another's with each other. You need to encourage one another. You, this is what biblical community is. Biblical community is not just hanging out. It's not just liking the people or most of the people. It's, it's really engaging with them. The, Matt Woodley gave a haunting uh, observation in a sermon. He said, for many of us, busyness is a higher priority than togetherness. So even though God made us to hang out, even though God made us for relationships, even though we need it and we're wired for it and it's a crucial dimension to our journey in Christ, we'd rather talk on our cell phone, rush down the expressway, and race to the next appointment in our marginless life. So we got to start by getting connected, by being together, by doing life, but then going beyond. You know, the New Testament is full of one another commands. Years ago, many, many years ago at Harvest, we did a series on the one another commands. I'm going to run through them like really quickly. So don't, 
Don't worry if you can't take all these notes down. We'll send these out in the pastor's heart this week if you want the references. But this little one another statement, uh, be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet, meaning serve each other. You are members of one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not judge one another. Accept one another. For married couples, do not deprive one another. 1 Corinthians 11, wait for one another in reference to the Lord's Supper, specifically there. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Do not provoke or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind and forgive one another. Submit to one another. This is husband and wives. Consider one another better than yourselves. That's all believers. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Encourage one another. Here in Hebrews 10, consider one another. Do not speak against one another. Confess your faults and pray for one another. Offer hospitality to one another and love one another. That's a lot of one another's, isn't it? (laughs) That's biblical community when we're doing that, not when we're just showing up for church services or even just showing up for group meetings. But we're getting beyond that. And if you obey these commands, I think that means the difference between connection, which is good, and biblical community, which is best. Biblical community involves our acting on behalf of each other and not just enjoying hanging out together. So in light of God's word today, I want to... I want to challenge you, if you're a believer, well, first of all, if you're not a believer to to realize, hey, I'm not even on first base yet, put your faith in Christ. But if you're a believer, I want to challenge you to a daily time of drawing near to God. I want to challenge you to adopt a new mindset when you walk in through these doors of a church gathering. The radical mindset is, I'm not here to ask, what can the church do for me? What can I do for the church? I'm not here to ask, how are people going to be relating to me and nice to me? But what what can I do to relate to them? I want to encourage you towards relationships of accountability. You've got a regular accountability with somebody. I want to encourage you to have the courage to take the risk If there's a believer, a brother or sister in Christ that you're in relationship with that needs a word of specific encouragement, whether it's a pat on the back or a challenge about something that's going on to to speak up. I want to encourage you to be involved in a small group. And in fact, before we leave this morning in just a few minutes, we're going to introduce you to the leaders, those that are here this weekend, of, of our groups. Many of these groups meet all year long, but a lot of them take the summers off, and we're, we're just kicking them off again. So that's kind of how we're going to conclude our service. I want to encourage you to use encouragement of all sorts. Good words, kind notes, gifts of love, and gifts of time.
because we would say that Hebrews 10 wants us and shows us how to be disciple makers. And a key part of that is being in biblical community with each other. Because of all that Jesus has done to bring us close to God, let's be intentional with him and with others. You bow your heads just for a minute. We ask the Lord how he wants you to respond in faith and obedience to his word today. So the students that are helping pass out the sheets, I want to invite you to go back to the back. And I want to, let me pray. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ. Imperfect but growing. Help us to be the kind of body you want us to be here in this place and to really live these one another's with each other. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.